Hey everyone, welcome to another episode of Fast Talk, your source for the science of endurance performance. I'm your host, Chris Case. Today, sitting down, Coach Trevor Connor is in the studio, and we have my neighbor, Joe Gambles. Next season starts now, and we want to help you ride your best season yet. Now, through October 24th, you can join Fast Talk Labs for half price. That's right. We're starting the off-season with our first-ever sale. Save 50% on your membership and get full access to all the sports science and training on FastTalkLabs.com. Your membership will include Pathways, our guides to things like cycling, interval training, and performance analysis. Over 45 of Dr. Steven Seiler's lectures and webinars. Workshops on how to use training peaks, intervals.icu, training stress score, injury prevention, how to create a personal sports nutrition strategy, and guides to exercising in the heat and during the winter. And library members get special member pricing on all our help sessions, sports nutrition consults, testing, and sports medicine consults. Your best season starts now with Fast Talk Laboratories. Join through October 24th for half price. Join today at FastTalkLabs.com. Joe, welcome to Fast Talk. Hey, Chris. Yeah, thanks for um, having me on the show. Niwat Neighbors. Niwat uh, Neighbors. Yeah, stalking you, and now I'm finally on the show, so that's pretty good. <laughs> and you yeah, didn't so, even know it, right? Yeah, well, we didn't even know it. So to to uh, let everybody know, it's not just my neighbor that I've invited onto the show. Joe, if you don't know his name, if you're not from the triathlon world, Joe Gambles has been racing professionally since... I did my first pro race when I was 16. Wow. So that's a long time ago. A long time ago. But I would call myself a professional since maybe 2005. 2005. And you retired 12 days ago. Yeah, not a fish. I haven't announced it or anything, oh. but maybe this is how I'll announce it. Yeah, it's now been it. announced. <laughs> I haven't got around to posting on Instagram, so I guess it's not oh, official yet. Right. But um, yeah, I did my last race uh, 12 days ago at the World 70.3 Championships in St. George. Uh with my wife and son there to support me and greet me across the finishing line. And Still yeah, it hasn't really in. sunk in yet. Yeah. But uh, yeah, the next step is take uh, my coaching to the, to the next level. And um, it's what I want to do and what I'm passionate about and to give back to the sport that has given me so much. Yeah. And you, you said uh, before we started the, uh, the recording here, you've been coaching about six or seven years. It's slowly ramped up as the careers wound down. Is that true? Yeah. I sort of uh, had a great start with my coaching uh, career. I ended up coaching a close friend of mine, Heather Jackson. Uh, in her first in her first year working together, she actually got third at the World uh, Ironman Championships in Hawaii. And then from that, I just started taking on some new athletes. And uh, yeah, really, really enjoy the process and uh, sort of passing over, um, along some of the things I've learned um, along my 25 years of racing in the sport. And it's actually the beginning of this year, started working um, with the Wahoo Sports Science team um, and doing some online coaching as well. So yeah. more cycling specific, uh, although they do offer triathlon programs, I'm generally doing um, more cycling orientated programs now, which I'm really enjoying. Yeah. Fantastic. And I think it's worth mentioning because people that have listened to Fast Talk for a while will know these two names that, that have been in your past and have coached you and you've probably absorbed some things from them as coaches to bring to your, your uh, coaching. Uh, philosophy methodology. Neil Henderson was a coach of yours for for a while, and Grant Holicky was a coach of yours for a while. Yeah, absolutely. And they're, and they're those two uh, really helped my career as triathlon was sort of progressing to that next level in terms of professionalism. And they really helped me 
bridge that gap to be able to keep relevant in the sport because it was uh, getting pretty uh, competitive really really quickly. And Neil, especially his uh, data driven um, uh, coaching methodology, really uh, got me interested in that. Which I didn't. I think I came to. I didn't really have an interest before that. I just used to race hard and. Uh, but then Neil sort of opened my eyes and to power meters and heart rate and all the and reverse periodization and all these things and uh, sort of uh, sparked an interest and I definitely learned a lot from him uh, as well as Grant on the swim side. Uh, just yeah, they really complemented each other really well and uh, I learned about different ways to coach athletes and how you can get the best out of uh, athletes depending on. Uh, yeah, what they're bringing to the table and, and what they need to progress in the sport. Excellent. Well, today we've uh, gathered up a f- several triathlon-specific questions. We've also got some cycling questions. Let's dive in. This first question comes from Frank Bastian. He's out in Bellingham, Washington, and he writes, I'm new to triathlon but have a decent background in other endurance sports, including running, which I did for five-plus years competitively. I haven't yet hired a coach to work with me for triathlon training. What's the best way or ways for me to determine how my training time should be distributed between the three sports? For further background, I have the least experience on the bike. I used to swim in high school and was decently competitive. Running is what I'm most comfortable with. Joe, I'll turn it over to you. Uh, I would say that this is not an uncommon question generally where people are – Coming from another sport to triathlon, they want to try it out. They might have a strength and two weaknesses. They might have a, a strength, a, a pretty good and a terrible or some some combination thereof. So how do you help somebody navigate the distribution question? Yeah, definitely. That's a great question. It's actually probably the best case scenario to have swum in high school, which is, which is great because learning to swim after the age of probably 20s is pretty difficult. It's a very technical sport. Uh, and then the fact that he's got a background in running also helps because running generally is the most, uh, is what the highest rate of injury, I guess. So the first thing to do would be to look at how many hours a week he has available and what event he's training for. So if he only has six hours to train a week and he wants to do an Ironman in six months, it might be a little bit, um, <laughs> sure. a little bit tough. <laughs> so let's let's pick say 10 hours a week and he, he's training for a Olympic distance triathlon or a half Ironman distance. So somewhere between two and six hours. Uh, I would I would probably spend most of my time uh, on, on the bike because he's saying that's his weakness and it's the lowest risk in terms of uh, injury. And it's a great way to build just a really big aerobic engine in a safe and methodical way. Uh, I would... So I would probably look at maybe doing, if you said you had 10 hours, I would go four hours on the bike where maybe you do one pretty high intensity bike session and one longer ride. And if he has finds a little bit more time on the weekend to ride, I would push that ride after two and a half hours up to three, three and a half hours, but keep it very uh, endurance based. And then I would probably the next thing I would uh, focus my time on is my swim. I think it's a great way to build your aerobic engine uh, in a very safe way. And uh, you've got to remember with triathlon, there's huge crossover between swim, bike, and run. And the biggest thing is consistency in training and and not getting sick and not getting injured. 
and uh, that's why I'll probably lean towards less running and more and do just more specific running off the bike to sort of get ready for um, for race day. So I would so four hours on the bike, three hours probably of swimming. I'd probably do two hours of running and then two 30-minute strength sessions a week would be sort of where I would start him. And with the runs, I would do one run off the bike, uh, maybe off the high-intensity bike, just to get that feeling of what what it's really like to try and run off, uh, off uh, you know, in a race. So when, then, when you say that, mm-hmm. how long should that run be? Does it have to be any more than a mile just to get the feeling or, or what? Yeah, I I would go a feel. I would I'd go anywhere from probably fifteen to thirty minutes running off the bike. I don't know many uh, athletes that do more than that unless they're getting ready for an Ironman. So I would go a feel, uh, and I would just more concentrate on running with good good form, um, and yeah, really uh, high uh, technique focus, and then. And then basically, uh, yeah, shut it down as soon as you feel like your form's falling apart because that's where injury risk goes up. And then the other run could be you could cycle through anything from a hilly, hilly, steady aerobic run to a to a more interval-based uh, session where you might do something as as mundane as three or four by one mile at at a good um, good effort around I guess ten k race pace, uh, so sort of threshold sort of pace and heart rate and then yeah I would sort of stick with that and I would really focus on on the bike side of things to really uh improve that uh aerobic capacity which in the end of the day it's any distance over triathlon in you doing triathlon is aerobic based so that's sort of your limiting factor Mm -hmm. and that takes the longest to develop so I would get started on that yeah Um, but it has to be controlled you can't go out on a Saturday group ride and start throwing in um, sprints and surges and king of the mountain, that ride has to be steady and the other one has to be a specific session, maybe on the trainer or and maybe do it by yourself. So you do it at your level. Yep. Great. Trevor, what would you add here? Not a ton. I think you covered that really well. Just, just a few points that I would make. One is this is a mistake I see a lot of people new to triathlon make, which is to think that they have to do equal time in all sports. And particularly if you have somebody who's only training six to eight hours a week, um, I actually sat down a long time ago with an athlete who, who she was training about seven hours a week trying to do equal. And when she explained her schedule to me, I, I sat there and calculated the amount of time she had to spend changing clothing, shoes, all this sort of stuff. And I was like, you're, you're probably spending more time changing than you are actually doing the sports and just encouraged her to not feel like every day she had to had to do all three or feel like she had to, to really balance them out. Um, so I agree with you completely that cycling is a good transfer. You don't in, it's much harder to injure yourself cycling than it is running. So I, I think a lot of the bulk of your work, particularly your endurance work, should be done on the bike. Uh, and again, fully agree with you about the transfer. The one thing I'll add, I'm just looking at the study by uh is an older study, 1994, by a, a Dr. Tanaka that looked at the, the crossover effect and basically said running and cycling transfer really well. Running actually transfers the best. Swimming doesn't quite transfer to, to running and cycling as well. The first time I met you, Joe, 
you came up to me at the Niwot High School track, and you were doing a, a track workout. Since since that day, I know you've uh, we we chatted about fast talk. We t- chatted about a lot of things that day. Um, I I don't know why I bring that up. It just I'm curious how much track work you uh, see triathletes doing. If that it, you know the speed work, I, I I see going to the track as an opportunity for speed work, not for endurance work. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I think the the day we bumped into each other, I was just doing pure neuromuscular training. I was trying to get my 39 year old legs to turn over because that I saw w- was my limiting factor in terms of. I had a very low uh, ceiling in terms of my top end speed. So I was just doing a specific four week block where I was doing, yeah, 10 to 20 seconds pretty much flat out, which wasn't that fast. Focus on form and then full walk back recovery, two to three minutes and some drills in there. And yeah, just really trying to yeah raise that ceiling because what I was finding is my if that ceiling's low, right when you step, drop down to race pace, the gap between my top speed that I could run maybe over 20 seconds and the pace that I want to sustain for 13 miles off the bike in a half Ironman or 70.3 was too close. Mm-hmm. So 520 mile pace felt really uncomfortable. So if you can sort of work the, the, the upper end in a safe way, which I'd been doing like hill accel- short hill accelerations, plyometrics, landing mechanics to sort of prepare the tissue to be able to run that fast. When you step back and run at your goal race pace, it's the limiting factor is not the speed, it's more the endurance and holding your form. So that's that was what I was trying to do. And at 39, I have, actually haven't slowed down which because I've been doing that sort of stuff um, and a big focus on the strength and um, element, uh, I think that's that's a really big uh, component. And to come back to the last hour of that 10 hour a week is the, the strength work. It's really important. And in terms of time management, you can do that before you do one of your runs or, uh, or after a run session uh, to really save time. So you're not changing in and out of clothes and you can just sort of yeah, incorporate that into the session. So maybe a 30-minute run with a 30-minute strength session is better than probably just an hour of running. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Right, right. Not to get you excited, just wait until you see the speed in your 50-year-old legs. It only <laughs> gets better. It's really? so fast. <laughs> I'm not sure if I believe you. <laughs> well, I, yeah, it's, it's really interesting. I kind of want to go down this track of, you know, you've been, you did your first pro race at 16. You retire at the age of 39, 23 years you could you could tell people a lot about how your training has changed mm-hmm. in 23 years i don't know if we can get get into all <laughs> of that right podcast. now but um yeah it'd be a long long podcast right uh, let me ask you this next question because it pertains to running maybe some of these elements can come out maybe you can bring up some of these things that you've learned over a really long career about yourself that can apply to others this is such an interesting question because four years ago, this question really wouldn't have existed. Yeah, right, it's, right. I love this question. Yeah, yeah, it's really, yeah. So so this one comes from a Hampton prior. He's in Sheffield in the UK, and he writes, Last year, I did a ton of my riding on Zwift during the winter. While I was doing that, I noticed increasing numbers of people using Zwift for running. So this winter, I'm seriously considering moving almost all of my training indoors and doing my runs on the treadmill on Zwift over the winter. But eventually, I have to get outside, right? So how can I make the transition to the road easier once the snow melts? Joe, 
do you ever run on Zwift? First of all, do you ever run inside? Yeah, I do run on, run inside. I think it's a great tool. I haven't actually tried running on Zwift because running for me, I don't know, that's just a distraction. Running's like meditation for me. And I like to sort of zone out and just focus on my breathing and rhythm. Whereas there's too much distraction, I think, on Zwift for me. Um, but I do ride, ride on Zwift sometimes. And when I need a hard session, I need to uh, be pushed. I, I'll jump on Zwift and do a session. Yeah. But uh, yeah, I, it's, a, it's a really good question. And I think, yeah, uh, there's a, a lot of people are turning to treadmill, which there is a lot of um, positives um, from it. Like in winter, uh, especially like in Colorado, or I'm sure they do get some snow and ice in, in Sheffield uh, in England, um, that it's safer to run on a treadmill. And if you want to do any intensity in the winter, it is a really good option. But there are, um, there are a few things you need to sort of be aware of with treadmill running, and especially if you're trying to prepare for triathlon, anything Olympic distance, half Ironman, Ironman, I think you need to be really aware of the eccentric component of running on a treadmill. I don't think, uh, unless it's one of these fancy treadmills that you can actually run at a negative grade, you're basically running at 0% or up to whatever 10 percent which is which is great for leg strength but a limiting factor in 70.3 racing and uh, ironman racing is that eccentric component which is really breaks down and then once that um, sort of breaks down you lose all form uh, when you're running and your pace can drop off significantly so i'm not saying don't run on a treadmill i think it's a great tool but i think there's certain things if you just want to run on the treadmill over the winter that you need to incorporate into your training so I would suggest uh, looking at some uh, landing mechanics work. And this doesn't need to be an hour session. You could do five minutes of like some some jumps, some skipping, and really focus on uh, force absorption. And then and, and another part of the component is actually getting into the weight room and doing some eccentric loading work. So we're lifting pretty heavy weights. Uh, I'm talking deadlifts, front squat, anything where you can lower a pretty heavy weight uh, slowly. So I'll, I'll be three to five seconds on the down. So in a squat, as you're going down, you're actually, that's the real focus of the exercise is lowering. So on a three to five second count, uh, squatting down and then coming up on a, a one, one to two count. And you'd be surprised how little weight you can actually lift doing that sort of work because 10 to 12 reps of that, even with the bar doing a deadlift or a squat, you'll you won't be able to walk very well the next day. And that's because you're really targeting that eccentric um, component, which people neglect. When you run outside and you run down hills, you're actually getting that, which is where you don't get it on the treadmill. So that's the only thing, unless you have one of these fancy treadmills that can run downhill. Mm -hmm. uh, so actually I do use the, the gym I run at in winter here in Boulder has, you can go minus uh, three, three degrees. And you can, uh, I'll do a session where I'll do four minutes uphill at five to six percent, sorry, percent, not degrees, percent. And then um, on the recovery, I'll keep the speed the same, but I'll do it to uh, minus three. So you're actually getting that um, eccentric load while you're still running at a decent pace, but you're recovering because you're running downhill. And I'll, that'll be a good way to replicate what you sort of need to deal with uh, in when you get outside and run on the road. 
in terms of that transition period, maybe it's spring, things are warming up. Would you suggest that people do half time in the on the treadmill still, get outside and half out there or some some percentage of each so that they're not going straight from treadmill out onto the road and, and smashing their legs? Yeah, I, I, honestly, I would still, I would be reluctant to just run treadmill all all through the winter. I would try, if the if it's good enough, get out at least once a week and just run on the road because it is a different sort of running. Throws in like uh, coordination, neuromuscular. Um, it's you're just keeping up with the treadmill when you're running on treadmill. You're not really generating the force in the mm-hmm, same mm-hmm. way. So you need. So some people will be like, "Oh, I'm running really well," and they run on the treadmill, and then they go outside and they actually it doesn't feel the same. And uh, especially when you're doing triathlon, when you're already heavily fatigued getting off the bike, you need to be able to recruit those muscles and really uh generate this force yourself <laughs> so but I, as i said it is it's a great it's a great tool i would use people still even in the summer months oh professional athletes will use treadmill for that more neuromuscular training because it's probably safer than running on a track because um, you don't run around a bend so you start getting like some interesting um patterning when you start running around a curve on the track and yeah you can really get some top end speed out on a treadmill in a safe in a safe way so uh there's definitely a place for it but it's just another tool you can't really get away from the fact that you need to be outside and trevor anything to add here the only thing i want to add is just an explanation of what you're talking about with that eccentric load for anybody who's unfamiliar with this and i'm just trying to think about how to simplify that whole running motion and explain it without getting into a lot of technical terms but essentially, when you're so if you're running on the flats, basically as your your foot strikes the ground, you are actually doing a little bit to control your speed, control your motion. So there's essentially think of it as a slight braking motion, a to control your speed, b it also kind of loads that spring action that allows you to launch into the next stroke. Your hamstrings are responsible for a lot of that. So they're trying to, so basically, as you said, a big eccentric load on the hamstrings to have that little bit of braking and and load the spring. If you're going uphill, gravity is going to take care of a lot of that for you. So there isn't really that big a load on the hamstrings. If you're going downhill, unless you're willing to start running out of control and eventually just kind of roll, probably lose balance and, and roll down the hill, um, there's a, you need a lot more of that braking motion. So there's a huge load on the hamstrings every time you strike the ground, eccentric load to, to control your pace, to control your motion. Um, and that can actually be quite damaging. It's one of the reasons when a, a cyclist in the off season gets off the bike and goes and runs. And if they're doing hilly terrain, I'm like, walk the downhill. Don't try to run it until you've, you've had a few sessions and, and, adapted your your legs to that eccentric load yeah no, definitely yeah i love cyclists because they have such a big engine and they're like i'm gonna go run in my off season and then they can't walk because yes. they, they can they can go all day they could go run for three hours if they wanted to but if they've hit some downhills yeah their body's just not used to absorbing force in the same way even though their heart and lungs they could just keep going the next day they're yeah, 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 probably for the next week they're sore <laughs> and their coach is like, okay, well, <laughs> yep. let's maybe hold that. Yeah, it's a little bit too much. But, That's why it's yeah. good to, if you, if you, and this is basically what I've done is I just have that maintenance run periodically throughout the summer months when primarily I'm riding and that yeah. prevents 
the the doms yeah. from all that soreness from kicking in every time I go out. If you just do it once a week, yeah, maybe once every ten days, whatever it has to be, you don't no, have to do too much. It's a twenty thirty minute run once a week, but your body quickly forgets if you yeah. don't do it within yeah. a couple of months of not running. Yeah, you'll pay for it. Like I haven't been lifting many weights and I'm sort of dreading those first few sessions. You don't even have, I, wait a second. You're retired. You don't have to do it anymore. But I have to stay injury free <laughs> and chase around my four-year-old son. <laughs> so that's the that's all my motivation ah, yes. now. He's ah, yes. he's getting fast. Yeah. So you yeah. keep up. Well, um, yeah, I'm going to tear a hamstring kicking the soccer ball or something if I'm not careful. So no, <laughs> I, strength work, especially that's that's actually a really probably another great question is to talk about strength work for the older athlete. Oh, absolutely. Um, important, important thing to that's do. That's a whole podcast. I'm yeah. sure you've done many of them. Um, but it's, yeah, at my age, like it's the only reason I've been able to keep racing is because I have been really uh, diligent with my strength work for the last, well, since I turned 30. I think you have to do it at all ages. Yeah. I wish but, I started earlier. Right. But when you're older, if you don't do it, you're going to have injuries. You're going to have issues. You're not going to perform your best. It's, it's just a necessity. Yeah. Absolutely. I actually spoke with the the chiropractor for the Canadian National Cycling Team one time and asked him, what is your busiest time of the year? And I was expecting him to say like spring or March or something like that. And he goes, hands down, October. I went, why is that? And he goes, because you have a whole bunch of cyclists with the engine to run a marathon and the knees to run about 10 minutes. <laughs> yeah, that's about, that's about right. And that transition from people having a complete break off the like. Two weeks of doing nothing and then getting back in, that's a pretty high risk time to, to get injured, I think, especially in running. Like that you actually, I try and have a couple of weeks at the end of, like right now I'm on a break, obviously retired break, but I don't, I've actually still run a couple of times because if I don't run and load the tissue, like for me to go and do a trail run, which I want to do because I enjoy it in it's just not possible yep. because everything, your body does, doesn't care that you want to go and run for an hour and a half in the trails. So you got to keep loading that tissue. And the older you get, the less time you actually, yeah, it goes back, mm -hmm. um, snaps back pretty quickly. To, yeah, it's a lot of work to get back that uh, flexibility. Next season starts now. Every year in September and October, I receive hundreds of emails from athletes looking for a coach or asking a training question. But as much as I try, I just don't have the time to answer them all. So this year, get your start to next season with our head coach, Ryan Kohler. Ryan is an exercise physiologist, a certified USA Cycling Level 1 coach, and he holds a master's in sports nutrition. Ryan heads up our virtual performance center at Fast Talk Labs, and now he's ready to help you. Schedule any help session or testing package with Ryan, and we will include a free one-month library membership to Fast Talk Laboratories. Next season starts now. Get your start at fasttalklabs.com slash solutions. All right, great. Let's move on to a next, our next question. This one comes from a Stephanie Weidenhammer. She's in Munich, Germany, and she writes... In the past several seasons, my training and racing has been very disrupted. It's been three summers since I've been able to do a full Ironman distance event. As I rebuild toward a goal of completing one in the summer of 2022, would you recommend I use sprint, Olympic, or half Ironman events, or a combination of several of these, to prepare for a full Ironman event? How much time would you leave between each of them? 
how should I approach the shorter events when using them as practice for a full distance event? Probably a lot to unpack there, Joe. Uh, what, what would your be would be your uh, recommendations here? Yeah, I, I think using uh, everything from sprint distance through to your final goal of doing an Ironman is a great way to sort of uh, plan out, map out your whole season. Uh, this sort of leads itself to a more reverse periodization type of uh, planning. Uh, so you do more of your higher intensity in in the winter, which I think probably would work in Munich. You probably don't get a chance to get out and uh, ride much outside in the winter. Uh, so you can sort of focus on more high, high intensity work, which sort of sets you up well for an early uh, season uh, sprint race, maybe in April. And then as the weather gets better, you can start adding a little bit of volume and start bringing back um, some of the intensity, which then leads itself to Olympic distance, uh, maybe four to six weeks later. And then uh, as you come into the summer months, you can start really building out the volume. And that intensity is sort of maybe once every 10 days, you're sort of doing maybe a high intensity bike workout. But a lot of stuff is the training you're doing is coming back to more race pace orientated work. And then... Um, a half Ironman sort of six weeks out from an Ironman maybe well the most the biggest Ironman in uh in Germany are in July so you got uh, Challenge Roth and Ironman Frankfurt and they're in July so if you did not a 70.3 uh maybe uh end of May June and then gave yourself sort of six weeks to do a specific uh, Ironman uh training block uh that whole um sort of progression would really set you up well, I think, for an Ironman uh, sort of in July, August time. And you could sort of start that in January, which sort of gives you 12. You've got a jet, so then you've got a sort of general prep phase of eight to 12 weeks. Um, and then you sort of move into more specific um, work. So you sort of finish that block with the sprint distance sort of to test. It's a great test to find out what your numbers are, what your 5k speed is, what your uh, 20 kilometer speed is. So maybe 30 to 40 minutes sort of power. And, uh, and then from there you can sort of start bringing the paces down a little bit in the intensity and start sort of building the volume around mm -hmm. it. Um, yeah. So that, I think it works perfectly. And it's funny enough, uh, any triathlon fans out there would know who Lionel Sanders is. So I'm not sure if you guys who know. We do. Yeah. Yep. Okay. From his hour record, probably got a bit of. So he actually did this and he's got his own YouTube um, not channel. Not that I need to promote it any more than it already is. But um, he actually Are did this. Are you jealous? I am a little bit. No, no, I'm not jealous of, of Lionel. Of his work ethic, maybe. But uh, yeah, he's, uh, he's a beast. But uh, he actually did this. And if you go back to his YouTube channel, he did a sprint um, distance um, specific block. And then he did, I think it was sprint or Olympic distance, so short course racing. And then he did a 70.3 specific block. And then off that, he won the North American Championships. And then after that, he went to his Ironman block. And uh, off the back of that, he's actually done, I think, three Ironmans now. Two of them really su su successful, but the other one, not so good. But... um. He sort of that, and he sort of documents how he went about that, and it's really it is it's very polarized to start with, uh, getting ready uh, in the general prep phase and to get ready for those short course races, and then once he sort of got that under his belt, then everything sort of became a little bit more race specific. So, in that sort of grey zone training, which I know that's like 
a dirty word in cycling, <laughs> but uh, it's sort of where we race. Yeah, in, sure. It's funny. I'd, that's, I'd love to ask Stephen Silo about that. What, how do you do for triathlon? Like, because we race where he says don't sort of sure. try and avoid. Um, that gets back to the, that whole question of specificity yeah, versus exactly. training systems. Yeah. And, yeah. and my argument would be, yeah, you probably, as you get closer to the race events, need to do some specific training, but I don't think that's where you best train the systems. So I would still polarize. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I'm very polarized, but if you ask me to sit right in the middle of that zone two for five hours, not a problem. Yeah, it's amazing. And I, this is where I've actually learned a lot from you guys listening to your podcast for the last couple of years. And, and I've changed my training. I've, I've become uncoachable at this point now because I think I know everything just from listening to you guys. Uh-oh. So, <laughs> Uh-oh. We've ruined you. I'm sorry. And uh, you, you apologize to Neil. But uh, no, it's, uh, but it's sort of, yeah, the actual race specific at my point, 25 years of racing is that little block is very small now. It's like two, three weeks of specific and it's more about practicing nutrition and dialing in pacing and uh the and running off the bike than actually build uh, yeah sort of improving the systems which i think the polarized model is the way to go for sure yeah when you were 14 years old <laughs> before you did that first race when you were 16 did you ever think that you would race until you were 40 as a professional athlete like that would That's be a good career. question. I actually did my first triathlon when I was 12. Oh. <laughs> uh, and before that, I was a competitive runner from when I was like five. So wow. yeah, I, I've only known competitive sport. But yeah, I did. I sort of wanted to be a runner, but quickly realized I just didn't quite have what it took to be a runner. Running's my passion. I love, I love running. But so happened I was actually probably better at cycling. But when I did, so I raced a little bit uh, through the junior ranks and then got an opportunity to race in my home state against some of the best guys in the world. Tasmania? In ta well, that, yeah, they had the Oceania Championship. So I got to race against my idols. Um, so guys like Greg Welsh, who was the first Australian to to uh, win the Hawaii Ironman. He was racing. Chris McCormack, Craig Alexander, all the guys that I had like posters of, I got to race when I was 16. I actually went back to race um, just amateur for a couple more years after that because I realized I had a little bit of work to do. But... Um, I've always loved the sport. I've just, and I think I've never lost that love for it. And I just, yeah. And I've always kept, a, I've tried to keep a really good balance between, uh, racing, training and things outside of that and from family and, and just my interest in music and other things outside of the sport have kept a really good balance for me. And, uh, and that's why I just keep coming back. And before I knew it, I'm 39 still racing near the top. I'm not quite where I was five years ago, but that's okay. That's the sport's moved on and I tried to go with it and now I'm just, yeah, just off the, off the mark and that's, yeah, and leave the sport with no regrets. And I honestly did more in the sport than I ever thought I would. I sort of reached my goals when I was 28 and everything else <laughs> beyond that was like a bonus. Yeah. Well, you, you say the sport has gone to a new place. Mm -hmm. and you, what what do you mean by that? Just if you go back and even look at bike position from uh, like the 1990s in Hawaii Man and the technology and like people's position and aerodynamics, that's gone. But uh, it's really, really improved even in the last five years. And you've got guys that are really pushing the envelope. So Jan uh, Fredino, who's 
yeah, the greatest of all time. Olympic champion 2008, made the transition, won 70.3 worlds and now has the world record at the Hawaii Man Championships. And he's leaves no stone unturned. And so he's just dragged everything up, and which is great. It's great for the sport. He's bringing the sport to such a, a wider audience. And um, yeah, it's just, it's just progressing really fast. And with the science and the technology that's available now, I think is really really important and people are looking after themselves better like people are getting in the gym two three times a week and really looking after their body they're building a team around them from physical therapies to chiropractors to sports psych uh, nutrition their guys are still in their well Jan Fredino's 41 I think this year and I don't see him stopping anytime soon but he's had a team around him for nine years I think when he's he's got his own massage own physical therapist that he he has on a retainer that just work on him. So that's the level we're talking about. It's basically he's built a cycling team sort of support network just for himself. Um, so obviously that's a big investment in time and money, mainly money. But that's that's sort of what's happened now. Yeah. I, I know you're biased, but is uh, triathlon the most time-consuming, most demanding endurance sport there is? I only know triathlon, but I'd say it'd have to be. I think, uh, like even some of the ultra runners, like they, you can't run more than probably fifteen hours a week. There's some Ironman guys that train forty hours a week. They're doing like what a runner, like a marathon runner. They're running eighty eighty miles a week, seventy eighty miles a week, riding five hundred, swimming. I don't know, fifteen twenty strength work two massages chiro physio it's it's nuts <laughs> it's, it really nice. is and and that's the that's the thing like people think i think people are starting to realize now that more is not better and finally, I, especially finally yeah, we're getting there right but i i learned the hard way like um yeah i i definitely put myself in a massive hole a few years ago especially when i co started coaching myself because you just keep moving the goalposts you're like oh i don't need a recovery day oh, i can but when you're just doing aerobic work all the time you can just keep pushing it until you realize that you've gone way too far and then when you realize that the best way to realize that is put yourself in a race and you can't go yeah but people i think Jan's one of the smart really smart trainers i was lucky enough to do a little bit of training with him when i was my wife and i lived in girona 2015 he doesn't do anything crazy he's just consistent and he's injury free 99 percent of the time he's 41 he's got a huge engine he's been doing this since he was a kid as well like it's just about sort of pushing at the right times and sort of keeping yourself healthy and maintaining um really more than just yeah and that's for a forward, that's for a guy who's been doing it a long time or, or a female obviously um, but then you've got young guys that are in their 20s. They can just handle so much. Like the guy at a boulder, Sam Long, who he trains like a maniac. But <laughs> he's getting the results right now. He was just second at the World 70.3 Championships. But he's yeah, he recovers so quickly. Mm-hmm. Whereas if I tried to do one week of his training, I'd be in, I'd be in bed for a month. So it's just different. And you, depending on the training different differs depending on where you are in your career. Sure. I'm not sure if that probably... Maybe a little bit more for cycle, less for cycling because it's not as um, you don't train as many hours and you don't have the running component. But I don't know if yeah if that's true for for cycling. I'm not sure if professional cyclists in their twenties train different to when they're towards the later uh, latter part of their careers. I'm sure it's 
quite individual mm-hmm. as most things are, but yes, there are probably some patterns you'd see in older athletes that um, maybe don't need to, like you were saying, that that specificity block doesn't have to be as long or the the base period might not have to be as long, things like that. But There's certainly some differences. Um, younger athletes, this is true of all the sports, younger athletes tend to be a little stronger. They don't have as good an endurance engine. So as you get older, you can certainly handle more volume. You just probably have to be more judicious with the the intensity than you can be at a younger age. But you know, certainly your your tour athletes will train similar sort of volume. You know, they're putting in six hundred miles a week, which is about forty hours. It's just what I would say is triathlon is a more complicated sport because while they're putting in that volume, it's mostly just easy riding. Or triathlon, you have to balance all these sports. And as you said, cycling can be a lot more damaging. It needs a lot more to recover from. Yeah, absolutely. And this is where Stephen Seidler's work is amazing. And I think it's it's so important for triathletes to understand it because I think we get caught right in the middle all the time. Yep. And especially when you're self-coached, and that comes from my own personal experience, you just you sort of start justifying, oh, I didn't hit my numbers because of, well, yesterday's ride and yesterday's run. And, and all of a sudden you just end up, you still do the training, you're still doing 30 hours a week, but it's junk. It's mm. absolute junk and you just get tireder and tireder. Mm-hmm. There's no strong signal for the body to actually adapt. It's just, your body's just basically in shutdown. <laughs> and you don't really realize it until you yeah, go and race and you realize, wow, I am exhausted. Biggest issue I've seen in triathletes is that they are just chronically tired. Yeah. And the pandemic is what actually showed me. I think we yeah. talked about this because we bumped into, into yeah, yeah. each other at the track in the middle of the pandemic. And yeah, I, there was no racing last year. So I cut my training from 25 hours a week to 12. And I'm like, wow, my numbers have just shot up. My I run speed, good. I feel yep. better. Yeah, I'm actually looking forward to training now. I'm like, right, I can't wait till I get to push myself again. Whereas before, I was like, I sort of have to drag myself out to, okay, I'll give myself 30 minutes to warm up on the bike and then I'll do the session. Um, I need another 15 minutes. Oh, and it, oh, the warm-up gets longer and longer and then you try and do the session. It's just nothing there. Yeah. But on the, in the pandemic, I was like 12 hours a week. It felt like it was it was healthy again. I see 12 hours is still extreme for most people, but it's nothing for a triathlon. That doesn't even count as a recovery week. Like our recovery weeks are still 18 hours a week. Yeah. No, it's not a recovery week. No, it's and not. I've, I've tried, <laughs> I've talked to triathletes or worked to triathletes where I'm like, we're going to take a recovery week and they're, they're planning all that. And I'm like, no, like you don't do anything for five days and they flip out. Yeah. I, I, I just got anxious just hearing that. I, I would, I'd be, <laughs> what, five days off? What do we do? <laughs> but, you know, that's yeah, yeah. With, with some of these triathletes I've worked with, I've, I've, I've kind of quipped that, well, I, I've got a, a secret strategy for, for your big race. And when we get close to the big race, they're like, what, what's the secret strategy? I'm like, I'm going to take you to the race rested because <laughs> everybody else is exhausted. <laughs> it's really true. People don't realize you are that fatigued and, that you actually don't realize how tired you are. It's chronic fatigue. Yeah. You're, yeah. you're in that. Yeah, you just get used to it. That's how you feel. Yeah, and like you watch a good example of this is when an athlete gets injured, they come back better than ever. Right. Not only because they've done the, the rehab work to actually make them bo- their bodies more resilient and stronger. Right. They're well actually, rested. They're rested. Yeah, yeah. Like I've had some of my best races. I won my first Ironman off being injured that year. I didn't run for three months because of an Achilles injury. And I went and won an Ironman off 
basically six weeks of running, I was definitely very sore because I didn't quite have that resilience, but I was hungry for it and not tired. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm. So many triathletes would perform better if they just learned to rest more. It's not in our psyche. Not at all. Not at all. <laughs> no. Well, you're going to try to change this. That, that, absolutely. And that is my whole coaching philosophy is, yeah, is I, I, I sort of love, I do as least amount of work for the po most possible gain. Sure, <laughs> sure. It's sort of where. It's ROI. I, that's it's where. If, yeah. Um, just doing that and to be consistent and not break down, not get injured, not get sick and just keep pushing a little bit at a time, just tightening the screws uh, week by week, month by week, and that you have to build months on months and, and years on years. Mm -hmm. It's mm -hmm. not just one season. You can't go from A to A to B. You need three, four years of consistent work um, is, yeah, in, is my opinion. Perfect. Well, let's move on to uh, our next question. I bet this is one that a lot of people in the triathlon world struggle with. Uh, this one comes from Zdenek Novak. He's from Prague. We have a lot of international listeners today or international questions. He writes, tell me when you have heard this one before. I often will feel good on the bike, but once I start the run, I will frequently get pains in the stomach or other symptoms of discomfort, GI stress, distress, you'd call it. What is the answer? Is there anything I can do to prevent this from happening? I've tried using all manner of nutrition on the bike from all liquid to all solid and everything in between. But every time, once I get to the run, it kicks in. So, Chris, I just got to express my disappointment that we got all these international questions and you didn't even attempt an accent for any of them. No, I'm not going to do that. We've got our accent on the program today. <laughs> I know the Australians listening are like, who is this? Where is this guy from? He's actually from Australia. I am. You were born in England. Born in England. And you've lived in the U.S. for 13 years. 13 years. So you're a hodgepodge of... You're, you're a man without a country, without an accent no, from a country. I'm, sure. I'm from Tasmania, actually, so yeah, <laughs> which I'm not sure how many people will know where that is, but actually they probably do. It's where Richie Port's from. There you go. Yeah, <laughs> so, that's, Richie has brought- Yeah, he's has. He's brought- uh, Awareness to Tasmania. And the cyclists that come out of there are pretty good. So. so you're in this wonderful place like me where no matter where you go, everybody recognizes you're not from there. Yeah. Absolutely. Like people that, in the U.S. Yeah. can tell I'm not from the U.S. But when I go back to Canada, like, you're not Canadian. Wow. Because yeah. I don't have my Canadian accent really anymore. You just get picked on everywhere you I go. I do. I'm used to it. I've got thick skin. That's okay. Because <laughs> we hear Australian, but probably when you go to Australia, they're like, where do you get that American accent? Yeah. I don't know. Yeah. It comes back pretty fast, but it's more the, the words I picked up from living in the U.S., like gas station and sidewalk. What do they call a trash? Side, what do they call a sidewalk? And I don't even know anymore. I've forgotten. <laughs> <laughs> pavement, I think. A, the pavement. Think but you so. call it a petrol station. Petrol. Do you call it a boot for the trunk of a car in, yeah, in Australia? Boot, yeah. yeah, yeah. We call it a boot and a bonnet for the hood of the car. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So there's. So there you go. I mean, it's it's very much like in the UK, right? Some, yeah. Some of these. Well, things. absolutely. I love that. Yeah. You know, it's the one that I lost that I'm trying to get back. Is in the U.S. you call it a bathroom. In Canada, we call it a washroom. Okay. And I like washroom better. And you probably call it a toilet. Or a dunny. A dunny. dunny. <laughs> That's even cooler. <laughs> is that, sl is that like slang. or something? That's slang, yeah. That's... You can bleep that out. Yeah. <laughs> that was not, it's not a rude word. It's just, yeah, it's just yeah. Australian slang. Yeah. 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 
So what was the question again? Okay, the question is... <laughs> that we, I remember. The, That's the right. guy, you know, this is probably not a, a, an uncommon thing. This is probably a very common thing where you've pushed yourself for hours. I don't know what distance this guy's doing, uh, what's typical for him. But regardless, you get to the jostling of the run, your guts just throw a fit. How, how, what's the... What's the that's a, re- a really tough question. Uh, and let's say that he's focusing on more 70.3 half Ironman distance to Ironman because that's generally where you'll get these GI right, issues. Right, right. Uh, so anywhere from, depending on how fast you go, four hours to, well, 17 hours is the cutoff for an Ironman. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. 17 hours to complete the bike before you no, get No, to run. complete the whole thing. Okay. So, yeah, that's so, the cutoff yeah, yeah. to get a finisher's medal is to complete under 17 hours. Yeah, it's it's a really tough one. Um, Did you ever have problems with this yourself? No, that's so why you're lucky. Up. Yeah, I'm really lucky. And the only way things that I could sort of think of, well, the one thing that I think a lot of people neglect is actually practicing their nutrition and training the gut under race condition, like a race simulation in sure. training. So people will go and do their Ironman ride, but they'll stop at a coffee shop and have a a bagel and and a cough and whatever like they'll they won't eat anything that they're going to eat mm-hmm. in a race, and then they'll go and try and force eighteen gels into down their um, throat in a race and wonder well what went wrong. I know like there's a quite a lot of research and you've probably got a paper already up about how you can actually train your gut to uh, be able to absorb more carbohydrate. Mm-hmm. We actually did a whole episode on that with yeah. Dr. Eukendrew. Yeah, I, I didn't want to have a go at pronouncing his name, but yeah, Oscar I was exactly Eukendrew. thinking of that episode. Yeah. Um, yeah, amazing um, stuff. And I've incorporated that into my um, my preparation for Ironman events in the last five, six years because of that. And you can definitely, you do train it. And if you mess it up, it's better to mess it up in training. And I've messed it up big time just with <laughs> things like concentration. Like you'll go out and have, a water bottle that some you've managed to fit 800 calories in and then if you don't drink enough water that's mm. coming back up like and i've done that in a night in a prep ride around boulder before and gone wow i really messed that up and i figured out what my the concentration of the what i was drinking was like 16 percent. i was like oh yeah i was meant to drink three water bottles with that and you just so these are the thin mistakes you need to you it's good to make them in training but the practice actually practicing um what you uh, want to take in race day in training is really, really important. Like this guy sounds like he's probably explored a lot of these things. I would think about getting a metabolic test and figuring out what actually um, you need to um, put into your body. Maybe it's less than you actually think. Mm. And if some people can put in 400 calories an hour, but um, maybe he, he can't tolerate that and maybe he doesn't need to. Maybe he could get away with 300. And then you start, and you want to maybe play around with like less fructose. Some people have problems with fructose. I know a few of my professional colleagues they they can't do it. Like I know it, you can absorb more if you bring fructose into with a multidextrin, but some people it just that comes back to haunt them on mm. the run. So, mm-hmm. um, but if he's explored mo- a lot of the avenues, I would go and get a metabolic test and figure out what at Ironman power. So. It's around, say, eighty percent of your threshold power, and then we can have a discussion about what threshold power. Is. But it's like yep. basically, um, yeah, your aerobic uh, first break point. So your aerobic sort of threshold. Go to a test and figure out. Okay, I need X amount of calories, and then uh, start with that. 
would be my advice if he's explored everything else. Yeah. Trevor, just give people who don't know what a metabolic test is a, the briefest of explanations. So, yeah, I mean, a basic metabolic test, we're hooking you up to a cart. We're, we're measuring your oxygen intake and, and CO2 and oxygen exhalation. Um, and believe it or not, from that, we can determine at, at each intensity basically how much your, your fuel is coming from fat versus how much is coming from carbohydrate metabolism. I had actually made a note. I wish we had had Ryan here for this one because this is right in his wheelhouse where he would do this test with you. And, and then figure out what you can absorb, what you can handle, and, and make these recommendations to you of, of what might help. Because everybody's going to be very different. Some people are going to be heavily reliant on, on fat. Some people are going to be heavily reliant on carbohydrates. And to give you an example, so I think of my brother who went and did one of those big adventure mountain bike races, one of those six days you're going six, seven hours every day. And he has a real hard time uh, handling carbohydrates. They were killing his stomach, but riding six hours a day, he had to do something. So he started pretty much just eating beef jerky because he's one of those people that's he's heavily reliant. He's Canadian. They, they eat a lot of beef jerky. Well, he's heavily reliant on fat. You know, beef jerky actually has a little bit of sugar on it, so he gets a bit of carbohydrate. But it was just it ended up being a better ratio for him. And I'm certain if we did a metabolic cart test on him. That's what we discover. So there's there's a lot of questions I'd have for this athlete. And one of them is exactly what you brought up. Are they just pounding tons and tons of gels? And maybe they have to look at alternate fuel sources that are a little bit better for them that they can tolerate. The other question I would have is the length. If there's an Ironman, yeah, you can't just not eat on the the bike and the run. That'll kill you. But if this is, a say, an Olympic distance, this is where you might need to weigh the differences, the, the, the pros and cons of getting a little bit of fuel in the system versus having your gut function, I would probably say maybe right before the bike, I'll wolf a couple things down and then just not eat the rest of the race. It's short enough. Is there any reason to think that poor hydration could lead to, could increase your chances of GI distress at some point if in the race? Is that a, is that a factor? Absolutely. I mean, a lot of what leads to GI distress is your your digestive system basically just shutting down and not be able to. It basically just sits in your gut and, and uh, ferments and, and causes you a lot of uh, uh, well, exactly what it says, distress. Mm -hmm. If you don't have a lot of fluid in the gut, well, I mean, the main thing that's causing that is your body's trying to keep the legs functioning. It's trying to fuel them. So more and more of the blood flow, the fuel sources are going to your legs, which means you're you're taking it away from the gut and the gut isn't going to function as well. The evolutionary reason for this, generally if you're going that hard, your body's going, I'm probably being chased by a lion right now. I'm more concerned about keeping my legs functioning than and digesting food. Digesting. I, I, I'll deal with digesting later. I just don't want to be digested myself. Right, right, right. So it, it shuts, shunts it away from the gut. Um, and if you're putting a lot of food, especially food that your digestive system normally has an issue with digesting, into a gut that's not functioning very well, um, that can cause a lot of distress. You have to be careful about that. And that's why I always tell people in long races, go towards more and more simple things that your body doesn't really have to break down and, and can just absorb. Uh, but certainly if you're dehydrating and you're not getting fluid to the gut, that's also going to affect the, the motility. All right. Let's turn our attention to 
final question here. It's almost as if Trevor wrote this one so that we he could get on his soapbox about knee warmers. What are you implying, Chris? What are you implying? (laughs) No, we actually got this question from a Joe Melton. He's up in Utica, New York. He says, I live in the northern U.S. and it's starting to get cold here when I train. I've heard your podcast about covering your legs, but I think I can tolerate the cold better than most. I bet a lot of people think that. You know, this is... This is a good question. I frequently wear arm warmers, but my legs are fine. Do I really need those knee warmers? Trevor, I'm going to let you lead on this question because I know you have a thing. Boy, I've been itching for this question. <laughs> for the last hour and a half. <laughs> I've So I was actually at a one of the – so I was up in Toronto end of September, and I went to one of those 5.30 a.m. group rides, and it was a chilly day. Mm-hmm. And I showed up with – knee warmers and arm warmers and everybody else showed up completely exposed, just shorts and jersey. Mm-hmm. And it was probably 55 degrees out. Mm-hmm. And they started making fun of me. They're going, why are you wearing all that? And I just, I was probably a little mean about it, but it was like, oh, well, I'm just the only person here who's dressed right. Yeah. So this is my soapbox. Let me see if I can answer this and just help with the understanding of this. It is not about feel. The point of wearing clothing when you are training is not about feel. We have thermal receptors throughout our bodies that tell us whether we're hot and cold. You have the least in your legs. You can't feel when your legs are cold. That's really important because everybody goes, my legs don't feel cold, so I'm fine. No, your legs don't feel cold because you don't have the thermal receptors there. So I could go out when it's freezing with my legs exposed and actually be relatively okay because my legs can't feel it, but I'm not okay because I'm doing a ton of damage to those legs. So the the thing I want to point out in that comment was that I frequently have arm warmers. Well, we wear arm warmers before we wear knee warmers because we have more thermal receptors in our arms and we do feel it, but your legs are just as cold and just as intolerant of it. And because you're trying to train your legs, that's the part you want to keep warm. That's the more important part to keep warm. So as strange as it sounds and as contradictory as this feels, it's more important to have knee warmers on than it is to have arm warmers on. So if you ever go out on a day and you put arm warmers on and you have your knees exposed, you are not looking pro. (laughs) <laughs> let me, let me throw way. this in there because I, I, I bet there are some people that are saying, well, my legs are doing the work. They're generating the heat, so they, therefore they don't need to be covered up, whereas my arms are just sitting there preventing me from flopping into my handlebars and they're not doing any work. And to that you would say? You're still getting that wind exposure. You're still getting the surface cooled down, so you're putting a bit of more of a load on your body. Um, so that's actually going to cause that vasoconstriction. So that is, it's not going to impact blood flow deeper into your muscles, but it's certainly going to affect it, uh, any sort of muscles or tissues that's closer to the surface, um, where I would personally rather have the, the knee warmers, um, to, uh, to keep blood flow throughout my legs particularly around the knees because you don't have a lot of protection there. You don't have a lot of fat to keep you warm. And so there's this effect where as temperature decreases, 
enzymatic activity decreases. So your ability to rapidly contract, relax, contract, relax muscles goes down. So if those muscles start getting cold, you're, you're basically then forcing the muscle to lengthen quicker than it can actually respond. And so the, the muscle still might be in a somewhat contracted state and you're lengthening it. So you're going to get muscle tearing. You're going to get damage. And where you have a lot of tendons around the knees, that can be a particular issue that you start getting a lot of tearing and damage around there. So really important to keep those knees covered so you don't get that damage that can lead to knee issues, that it's going to hurt your adaptations, it's going to have a whole lot of negative effects on you. So again, this isn't about do my legs feel warm or cold, this is about you're going out to train what's best to help your training and to prevent injury. And you'd actually be surprised how warm it can be out and you should still be wearing uh, knee warmers. So I got this from Dr. Pruitt when I discussed this with him. And, and the rule among pros is below 70 degrees, so that's about 19 degrees Celsius, wear knee warmers. Below about 55, 60 degrees, leg warmers. And I, I know everybody's listening is going, that's crazy. Why would I ever do that? But again, it's not about feel. It's about performance and aiding adaptations and preventing injury. But I'll give you this rule because uh, that was in the question. If it is ever cool enough for you to feel you need to have your arms covered, you have to have your legs covered. Or the, else the Trevor old, will come haunt you, uh, haunt I will you down. taunt you and make fun of you. <laughs> because, again, you have more thermal receptors in your arms than your legs. Your legs are just as cold and miserable. You're just not as aware of it. Mm-hmm. Anything to add here, Joe? Or did he uh, just cover it? Yeah, I was just going to ask about the cutoffs, but you just addressed that. So... No. So, and the damage, what, so is, yeah, you address that too about what damage you're actually doing and yeah. And limiting the, the training effect and stuff. So no, I don't think there's anything I can add to that at all. <laughs> I'm learning. You're learning. Yeah. You just went through your entire career without knowing that you should have covered your knees. I actually was told back in Tasmania when I started racing bikes, uh, the former pro that used raced in Europe asked me why I'm not wearing leg warmers. All the pros wear wear red uh, leg warmers, and it was yeah, I don't think it was cold, maybe sixteen degrees Celsius. So yeah, sixties, and yeah, he's like, no, they 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 will always cover their legs. You got to look after them, and and actually runners do the same thing. You look at good runners, you watch like track and field athletes warm up and stuff. They're all wearing leg tights, and they'll take their leggings off just before the start. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, so running, I. I think it affects me more with my running. If I go out with shorts and it's below 60, my knees ache for like two hours after after the after I run. Uh, I see runners out when it's below freezing. They're just in shorts. It kills me. Runners are crazy. Like in Colorado, like you'll see like the CU cross-country team. Shirtless. Shirtless too. in January because yeah. the sun's out. It's still 28 degrees. I'm like, you guys are crazy. At least put some leggings on. Don't wear a shirt if you don't want to, but wear some leggings. It's a, it's a thing your engine. now. It's a, yeah, it's not even so much that they're warm. It's a, it's a show running off. thing. It's a show. No, it's a, it's a, a running, it's a running thing. Um, yeah, and I, I run in leggings uh, in from probably about October because mm-hmm. I just hate that feeling of aching knees uh, if I go and run. Yeah. 
So yeah. you, you you know this is a soapbox for me, so I can sometimes be a little nasty to people. <laughs> so I remember many years ago, I was going out to the Gateway Ride here in Boulder. It was in the winter. It was a warmish day. It was probably about 50, 55 degrees. And an old teammate of mine, David, uh, came up to me as I, as I was, we were both heading towards the ride. And he had just gotten a pro contract, was really proud of it. So wanted to show up to the ride in his team kit. So it's it's like, it's cold out, cool out. And he's got his arms exposed. He's got his legs exposed. And he comes up to me all proud of it. And I just look at him and go, boy, Dave, I'm glad you're not on my team anymore. He goes, what do you mean? I'm like, because I would be embarrassed if you were wearing that little in our kit. And he's like, well, I'm fine. I can handle it. You know, I'm, you know, I'm training the cold and all that sort of stuff. And as he's making all these excuses to me, Taylor Finney and another top pro ride by us and just start ripping into him <laughs> about what he is wearing. And he spent the entire ride at the back of the group because he was so embarrassed. But he's probably never turned up again. Yeah, that. right. He, he, never, he never made that mistake again. Yeah. <laughs> never made that mistake again. Nope. Or he rode by himself the rest of the time. I don't know. <laughs> well, Joe, it's been a pleasure to have you on Fast Talk. It took us a while to get you on the show, but here you are. Thank you again. And congratulations on a very long and successful career. All right. Thank you. Thank you for having me. I appreciate that. It was uh, I really had a good time. Thank you. Great having you on the show. Thanks for joining us. That was another episode of Fast Talk. Subscribe to Fast Talk wherever you prefer to find your favorite podcasts and be sure to leave us a rating and a review. The thoughts and opinions expressed on Fast Talk are those of the individual. As always, we love your feedback. Join the conversation at forums.fasttalklabs.com to discuss each and every episode and become a member of Fast Talk Laboratories at fasttalklabs.com join and become part of our education and coaching community. For Joe Gambles and Trevor Connor, I'm Chris Case. Thanks for listening. On October 24th, our half price membership sale ends. This is our biggest sale of the year and your only chance to save 50% to join Fast Talk Labs. Get all our training science and member pricing on services and testing. Join today at FastTalkLabs.com.